Welcome everyone, and welcome to the podcast of Base and Corporation IoT for the rest of us. In today's episode, we will be discussing the theme of cooperation on data, data markets, and other related issues on using data. I'm Nhi Dang, marketing coordinator at Base and Corporation, and we have with us today Mr. Marty Ulikowski, co-founder of Botanet. Botanet is about promoting a new way of building private networks for cooperatives and communities. Marty himself has more than 30 years of experience in software, architecture, and as a product manager. He had worked um, with a number of industry verticals such as print, construction, travel, internet marketplace, silicon water manufacturing, and retail. And it is our pleasure to have him joining us today. Welcome, Marty. Yeah, hello. It's uh, nice to join. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, and thank you so much for joining in today's episode. So I have learned that you recently started a six-part blog series on cooperation on data, data market, and some general general notes on using data. Would you share with us um, how did you decide to start this content series on this topic? Yeah, so uh, I have a kind of substack called Schrodinger Mind. So it, it's actually a book that I have been written. So I left Nokia 2019 and I'd been uh, writing a couple of years uh, short text about various topics that kind of interested me about future in, in general, future of money, use of data, how traditional enterprises can transform themselves, uh, how this kind of strange crypto world works and so on. It was like a way for me to understand what was happening because a lot of things were obviously loose and chasing at the world. And at some point that Nokia, I kind of understood that I was actually writing a book I had started writing, but was kind of just for fun. And when I left 2019 in kind of May, I thought that this will take me about three months to finish the book. And then I'll find a publisher and this, then I just get over with it and do something else. And then three years later, I had a book more or less ready and it was quite big. So it was over 300 pages in A4. And as a book format, that would be six, 700 pages. So and kind of finding a publisher is very difficult unless you are like a professor or a known, known figure somehow in industry with a really big following and can in detail explain to a publisher how they are going to make money if they publish this book. So I had shared this book with a few friends and one of them suggested that I actually publish it on Substack as a set of articles and I kind of started liking that. And it's kind of a good way to clarify your thoughts that there is no real schedule you can you need to publish it in small snippets so that people get to write get to kind of read about it and it kind of makes the writing better and it also there's also this kind of hope that maybe some of the readers find errors in the text and they will set me right and the kind of output becomes better so and this kind of um, data markets the use of data. That's actually, I even made an internal proposal at Nokia. It's kind of six, six part on data that is currently out is part of that bigger series of topics. 
So would you also let us know what the um, content series is about in brief and what is your ultimate goal with um, this blog series? The, the bigger blog series is about uh, the kind of model for a decentralized world, how self-sustainable communities uh, who could kind of an, support themselves locally from local resources and then cooperate globally through this type of a kind of a decentralized word model. The kind of a data series is more about how do you build cooperation around data and what are the general kind of things to avoid when you use data. What are the common problems or pitfalls when you kind of cooperate with data and how, how, do you be, how different companies can share data in a way that they can trust each other. That's kind of part of the data, data right. stories. Right. And um, you mentioned in one of your blog that one's digital twin or data markets will not contain information that no one has already told it. And only by having the understanding of the domain is possible to look for the absent data. So the data that we wouldn't have are more valuable than the data that we would have. So I would just like to ask, would you like um, to elaborate further on this point for our listeners? Uh, maybe uh, if it's suitable, you can also share some example what what it be like or what it means for having the understanding of the domain? Yeah, I mean, if you do, if you study machine learning, one of the classical examples they saw is around the warplanes in World War II. So there is a need to increase survivability of planes in a war situation. And the, and the kind of question is that what are the places in a plane that you need to reinforce? because uh, kind of reinforcing the whole plane would add too much weight and it's not practical. So the data you have is about the kind of an hits in the plane when they come back. And if, when people look at what, what where are the most damages in warplanes when they come back from an operation, there's typically hits in the wings and, and tails. So the kind of first idea is that these are the, place, the places that got hit, so maybe we should reinforce those, but uh, if you think a little bit more, there are almost no hits in cockpits, and if you understand the domain, you understand that if a cockpit is hit, then the pilots die, die and then the kind of plane goes down, so it's actually the cockpit that needs, needs reinforcement, but there's absolutely nothing in the data that tells you about that. So once you have, typically companies have some data, they have a visibility into some part of the reality, but, but there, there could be a lot of data that they don't see that is more important. So it's kind of important when you do data analysis or machine learning to do it in the, to understand the context and to have this kind of common sense also, that that's not really encoded in any, any analysis libraries. So it's sort of like uh, having the technology and having the data um, of itself is uh, cannot be the only solely thing like independent from also, you know, our understanding of the context that, you know, the how to utilize the data efficiently, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you need to have the kind of context over the whole picture in in in, in relation to the data that you have, and, and then the results you need to kind of you need to check them. Right, and so since because that that point you don't also kind of mention about you know the the digital twin concept. So in that in that understanding, that would also mean. Um, because digital twin concept, I think, has been mentioned more regularly recently. I, uh, I I presume so. That also kind of maybe having it become a bit more popular um, doesn't maybe also necessarily mean that um, everyone should uh, adopt this concept without really understanding what can it does for you. Digital twin is a kind of typical, I think, American term that it's a little bit fuzzy. It's kind of, I mean, you can, I think in Europe, it's often defined like a copy of the real world thing, whether that's a process or device or, or some other activity. But I think Americans often use words in a very loose sense so that they, it allows marketing to kind of rebrand all stuff under digital twin, but it's kind of also allows to innovate because there is no clear boundary what is a digital twin and what is not. In the book, in parts that I have not published yet, I define digital, digital twin in a very broad sense to contain the whole life cycle of a product, so the, all the production data, all the kind of materials going into or subparts going into the thing, uh, production data, logistics data, the data coming from the field while it's used, all the repairs, upgrades, enhancement and then kind of recycling data. So if, if you have this kind of very broad sense, then you have a fairly good good part, kind of good understanding of the product, but you still need to kind of look. I mean, there's a lot of missing data questions also when you have a digital twin. For example, let's say that you sell products and some of the products are never turned on. Why, why are some customers never never connecting to your kind of cloud services. That's that's kind of one, one important question. I, I think around this digital twin, there should be like a, another project or another team looking for missing data that what, are, what is the kind of, what is the data that we are not getting, even when you have a very comprehensive digital twin policy or you, you collect lots of data. Right. I see. So, um, in your opinions, do you think then that the digital twin technology or the concept of itself is still quite um, new, fairly new to everyone, every industry in the market? Yeah, I think uh, companies have been collecting data for a very long time, but I think this uh, digital twin is more like a I think it's a kind of a, this kind of a philosophy that you uh, systematically start collecting data that you have, and then you then you start to kind of gain value from that one. So I, I think it's kind of useful in in that sense as a kind of guideline for companies. But for sure, companies have been collecting data for a very long. But uh, it's been I think kind of what has happened is that. Uh, uh, mobile networks are nowadays everywhere and, and kind of data transfer rates are down. So it's nowadays possible to add sensors, practically anything. But in the past, that was very 
kind of expensive and only the most kind of central central points in processes or products or kind of very expensive products at this kind of a data collection but the data collection of course is quite quite old it used to also be more like this stovepipe architecture that there that there was kind of separate data was not there was no kind of comprehensive data policy that you try to inside a company share data but nowadays also this digital twin and general trend is to try to break these data barriers right and then uh maybe on a little bit quite relevant note um then what are your opinions about um, IoT, Internet of Things technology? That also is about collecting data, uh, collecting more data and utilizing them in innovating or improving um, existing operations. Yeah, I think everything will have sensors uh, uh, sooner or later. I think Windows will add sensors to products because they want to understand better how customers use products what causes products to fail also to kind of practical questions to see if customers breach the contract so if, if the warranty is not is void that can save companies a lot or or to kind of an, and also all these new services like predictive care and fleet learning they depend on this kind of iot data so i think iot is like a yeah, I think this kind of censoring will be everywhere around that one. It also has its own problems around privacy because there's a lot of uh, when data is collected from our activities is also kind of it can indirectly contain a lot of private private information about the users around the devices, which users may not want to reveal to the outside world. Yes. Right. Um, I uh, I've read through your blogs, and you also said to ensure quality data is to publish it, including possible errors. And you as well mentioned the standard, common hesitant response to this advice uh, by businesses. Uh, what would you? tell or advise to business and organizations to have them overcome this first hesitancy to uh, in having a completely transparency in their data. Thinking about the kind of data inside the company. I mean, no one wants to do the, their laundry in public, so that's just human nature. So when, when data from existing data stores is published, it's typically not in a very good shape. So there's a lot of Error. So if there's some data that's manually entered, then that uh, data can be like totally useless. So I, have, for example, I have in my time been asked to fill all kind of quality assurance data, kind of manually filling, and no one ever kind of informed me back how this data is used. So there was no closed loop. Then typically, when data is collected from people without actually them seeing what is the value of that data. They just start to, let's say, fill it very quickly and the data quality is very, very low, so practically it's kind of useless. Sensor data is a little bit different because kind of mechanical things don't feel the same. 
also this kind of an sensor data is tends to be not so good. So if you do machine learning or other courses, there's always like a well-prepared data set. But in, in real world, sensors kind of drift and there are gaps in time series. Sometimes there's duplicate data. There's kind of an all kind of errors in the data. Sensors can also be changed in the in the middle of your time series, but no one tells you about that one. It's kind of a tricky understanding if, if you're actually getting measurements from two different devices with different accuracy, and then you try to somehow analyze the data. So the kind of recommendation that I actually heard from another person is that you should just publish what you have. Then there's a kind of, kind of a slashback, because people, who have, people whose data is published and it's not very good, they will be kind of an embarrassed and they say that let's let's wait until this uh, we'll correct this data first and then just let, let's proceed after that one but you know that nothing is as uh, permanent as temporary so there's always some more pressing customer customer request or customer urgency and this kind of data this great great data quality improvement program never gets gets really completed so the only way to actually ensure that you have a good quality data in your digital twin is just to publish it, whatever it is, with all, all this kind of faults. And then when people see what it is, then they start to correct it. But as long as you don't publish it, then you'll never, never get to actually having good quality data. And then, of course, you can hire some people to kind of fix the data, program it again, but that has big risks because when people start to kind of guessing with code that what actually is, what is the value of this missing data. It's kind of better to accept the facts as they are and, and live with the reality as it is and then over time improve it rather than trying to hide problems. Right. And so when you say like uh, you meant more that, you know, the data in inside the company. So so that was what you meant when you say that just have it at transparent and uh, publish it and a company, uh, not company, someone will come, um, will maybe, you know, with uh, experience with them before something will correct it. So that you referring to having it the transparency internally yes, of yeah. the companies, right? Yeah, I mean, teams that uh, are publishing garbage, they will correct their behavior or, or they, they will either stop kind of publishing garbage or they will correct their behavior. I think both, both can, can be quite uh, good effects because if, if people are asked to fill in something that has no value, then stopping it is actually a big benefit to companies also. I would like, this probably is the last question. So I, I uh, want to ask you in this uh, podcast episode, but uh, there's this one blog you wrote about centralized platform, and you concluded with a section about the dilemma of uh, online information and ended at the note that everything begins with admitting there is a conflict. And and this statement certainly at least makes me pause to ponder. And so I would like just to ask, would you like to share more with us here about this dilemma of um, online information? 
Yeah, and that's kind of related to, uh, let's say, search engines, which are also a kind of platform. So the core dilemma is people have a right to information and a right to privacy. And they are both like important human rights. So the right to privacy says that uh, I have a right to be forgotten. So for, for example, about the past actions or my present orientation, if it is really damaging to me. But at the same time, kind of general public has a right to, right to freedom of expressions, so kind of an, and right to voice their opinions about, uh, let's say, true and public matters. That's the kind of an term used. So how do actually search engine balance these two rights to right to be forgotten and right to information? That, that's the kind of question. And the interpretation is quite different in European Union and US, for example. So in Europe, people can submit requests to global search engines to have the links to their past, past actions like bankruptcies, criminal cases, insolvencies, and so on, removed from the results. And a large percentage of those uh, requests get accepted because um, nobody really there is. This needs to be automated because uh, there are so many requests that nobody can manually handle them. At the same time, it's legal in Europe for newspapers to have a local search engine to return those same results. So it's like a it's like a funny situation that same information is both uh, kind of an not available and available at the same time, depending on the size of the company presenting it. And then there's like questions that uh, if I build a meta search engine that uses newspaper search engines as a, let's say, baseline, and nobody knows if that would be legal or not legal. So there, there's like a currently a conflict between these two key human rights. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that the legal situation is quite un unclear. And it's right. the role of search engines to somehow navigate. And you can get guaranteed that uh, they will get criticized because it's like an impossible situation at the moment. And I, I think it will remain for quite a long time because it's not, not clear at all what is the right thing to do in, the, in that sense. So that's one of the, let's say, more, more specific questions of, around this privacy information. But luckily, most data platforms don't have if they can't deal with the machines and sensors and, and the physical world. But when you deal with data from peop about people, then there's a lot of other questions emerge that are sometimes very difficult to answer. Yes, definitely. Yes, I, I totally agree on that point. Um, so before we concluded the podcast episode, I just want to ask, um, so how do people, uh, if they're interested to check out your blog series, how do they find it? Yeah, it's on the Substack. I think it's, uh, I think it's martyulikoski.substack.com. Yes. Okay. Yes, great. So um, thank you, Marty, for um, joining our t uh, podcast episode today. Thank you for all of your the great 
your great answer and insights on this topic. And um, it was thank a you. pleasure. Yes, <laughs> it was our pleasure to have you too. So thank you. And um, hopefully we have another podcast episode with you in the future. Okay. Yeah, I would be glad to join. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that concludes our podcast episode today. Thank you all for listening. You can listen to all our other available podcast episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcast. You can just find us by typing IOT for the rest of us, the base, the base and podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow our podcast for updates on the next coming exciting episode. And we will see you at the next episode.